0: Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering. So please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Um, it has been getting warmer here in LA and I've been dreading it because if you don't know, Sean and I do not have a uh, central air. We have like one air conditioning unit, which used to not really be a problem because, uh, Santa Monica was not as hot as it is in the past. Like, I don't know, God, it's been a lot of years now, but when we first moved in, we've been here for almost 10, 11 years. Um, when we first moved in here, it didn't get that hot, so it wasn't that necessary, but we are preparing for the heat wave. I'm talking about a heat wave. Um if you're new here, sorry, should have welcomed you. Welcome. My name is Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and this is Ask Katie Anything, where I answer your questions about mental health and, you know, anything really about mental health things, therapy, treatments, uh, you know, motivation, all that stuff. So, If you are wondering, if you're listening, you're like, well, dude, I want to ask a question. What's up? Ask the questions. Um, or I will post in the community tab of the opinions that don't matter YouTube page. If you don't know how to access that, you go to go to YouTube, put in the search tab opinions that don't matter. You'll see a little uh cartoon of Sean and I, and you open it and you'll see that the page of that, you know, that channel has Ask Katie Anything and Sean and I's podcast, Opinions That Don't Matter. Then you'll hit the community tab across. It'll be like videos and about and all that stuff. You'll see community, hit community, and you'll see my post asking for your questions. And I ask for them usually on a Monday, uh, maybe on a Tuesday at the latest. But make sure you have your notifications turned on for that so that you don't miss out, so that then you can ask your question. And the questions with the most thumbs ups are the ones that I answer. And today I have 11. So it's because the last two had the same number of thumbs ups. So I, I, we get a little extra bonus. Um, yeah, I finished just a little update on me. If you're interested, if not, uh, you know, maybe scoot forward about a minute or two. Um, I finished chapter six of my book about trauma and this chapter was all about memories and repressed memories, trauma memories. How are those different? All of that stuff. Um, pretty science-based like neuroscience-based, but I try to make it relatable. Thank you so much to everyone who sent in their stories about this and how it feels. Um, yeah, it was, it was very interesting. It's cool. Cause I get to learn along with you guys while I write this book. And I hope my hope upon hopes is that it's helpful for at least one person that all the work that I'm putting into it makes uh, trauma make more sense. And it's something that people can understand and if we share the book with them or read a blurb or whatever that they're, you know, they can better understand our experience or we can better understand our own personal experiences. Um, yeah, so it's just been a busy time, but no, you know, we're just at home. Living that, uh, you know, socially distanced life, <laughs> um, dreaming of owning a home with a backyard and not all that jazz. Um, but I hope you're doing okay. I know things. It's weird. It's weird when we're in this like extended period of of isolation and and distance from one another. And more than ever, I think we need that connection to manage how we're feeling and to feel like it's all worth it. And you know, I know a lot of people are struggling with like suicidal thoughts and not feeling that great. Um, so just know that you have our community. And I hope that you're taking some time every day to maybe recognize things you're grateful for or do things that help you feel better. Um, making time to connect with people, even if it's just like FaceTiming on your phone or something like that, um, making time to do that kind of connection and, and to, to see and touch base with people in your life that are important to you. Um, yeah, I hope that you're making time for that because Sean and I are doing our best to do it. And I, I honestly believe that when we have more of these, like, social hangouts through Skype, Zoom, FaceTime, whatever, we feel better. And I know going into it, I have this problem and I'm sure many of you do too, where the longer I don't see people or the longer I don't socially engage, the easier it is to not engage. Do you know what I mean? And so people will want to set up hangouts and Sean and I both are like, "Mm, you know, we're just kind of in our like routine or whatever. And I know, I I know myself, I'm like, nope, we got to push through it. We're going to do it. We're going to hang out and then we're going to like it. It's going to feel good. So Um, hopefully that gives you a little push to do what you got to do to take care of yourself. Um, Yeah. Anyway, take care of yourself. I also know that online has been super negative. I feel like uh, someone's always canceled. Just like a few weeks ago, Joe Rogan was canceled and this guy, Brett Weinstein, they were mad about something they said in a podcast and that was all over Twitter. Now people are canceling YouTubers and people are, it's just a lot. And it's a lot of hate and So I hope that you're taking breaks from social media. That's what I've been doing. I'm not engaging with any of the conversations. I'm not talking to people about it, uh, mainly because I think it's so, it's so negative. It's all uh, the blame game and shouting and being mad at other people and you're doing this wrong. And, um, and that's just not a space that I can live in when I'm trying to create content and trying to, to create hope for people. So do what you need to do too. And don't, you don't have to apologize for it. You don't feel bad about it. It's okay if you just aren't on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever for a while, you know, we need to take breaks or just limit our use each day, whatever works for you. Okay. Let's get into these questions because we've got quite a few. Um, and let's start off with a bang. This uh, first one is, is pretty funny and, and good because it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of questions. It says, Hey, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. I'd like to know when do therapists ever get a break? How do therapists avoid burnout from working so much? How does a therapist coordinate going on vacation or a honeymoon or maternity leave or jury duty? How can a therapist maintain work-life balance if their clients consume so much of their time? Inquiring minds would like to know. Thanks, Katie. I love this question because <clears throat> whenever you guys ask these things, I realize that that I haven't talked about it. And it's something that within the therapist realm and with my colleagues, we we kind of know and we've dealt with it. and. Yeah, it's just information that should be out there. People should understand how therapists take breaks, how we take care of ourselves. And the truth is, therapists do get breaks. Um, However, I will put in this caveat that not all therapists take good care of themselves. Uh, Avoiding burnout is very important, but not all of us are good at that. And I will be completely honest with you guys. Uh, When I first started, uh, I was working in the eating disorder treatment center and I was working at the hospital part-time and I also had private practice. There was a, a huge period of time in my life when I was working multiple jobs. Um, there was even a period of time when I was gaining hours and then I was also working as a waitress. So I'd get up in the morning at this breakfast joint um, called Jack and Jill's. Uh doesn't exist anymore, but you know, rest in peace. It was an amazing place. And I would go there in the morning and you know, and then I'd work in the evening. So it was a bunch of, I was. it was a lot. And we're not always that good at maintaining work-life balance. A lot of us can overwork as a way to you know gain hours or because our patients need us, a lot of us need to be needed. We definitely fall into that like uh what's it called? It's like negram uh type is it two four I forget you guys let me know, and I'll be completely honest with you guys i'm I wasn't that good at, at avoiding burnout back in the day when i worked i mean most therapists i'll be honest, most therapists when they're starting out unless they have a full functioning private practice, most of us work multiple jobs. Meaning, you know, we work like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday at an eating disorder treatment center and uh, Tuesday, Thursday nights at the hospital is pretty much my schedule back in the day. And then I worked on the weekends and my private practice for a while. And then I moved, you know, things started to shift around. I used to work Tuesdays in my office and then Thursdays, well, Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then I changed to like only Thursdays and then Wednesdays, Friday, it's all over the place. And so we can really struggle to take breaks and to take vacation and to not overwork ourselves. And The really what I credit my change in, I guess, managing this is to having more friends that are doing the same thing as me and making time to connect with them. And so I have this monthly, I've talked about this periodically, but I have this monthly group um, of just psychiatrists, therapists, psychologists, all of us getting together to talk about cases and research and just things in our field. And so um, that is really, really helpful for me and reminds me about the importance of boundaries. And so the real way, so therapists do get breaks and it's all about communication with our patients. Okay. And that can be really hard for some of us and you have to learn how to communicate that. Um, like for instance, when I, I lucked out when I took my honeymoon and Sean and I went on two weeks, um, for honeymoon, I didn't have patients in my private practice at the time. I was just working at the hospital. Okay. So that made it easier, right? Because When you work in a clinic, and this is something to maybe consider if any of you out there are wondering about you want to become a therapist, there are, it is easier when you work at like a clinic or a hospital or a treatment center, because when you take vacation or you take a break, uh, there are other people to fill in for you. You don't have to figure that out on your own. It's just like you put in for your vacation, it gets approved and you leave. And that can give you a lot, uh, what I think is a lot more space and, um, support and, and the time needed to avoid burnout and to take breaks. Um, however, you make less money. So those are just things to weigh, you know, weigh and measure. Um, and so you, the way that it really works. So now let's get into the logistics of it. The way that it actually works is that therapists coordinate with one another. Um, I have either some, it depends on how long you're taking a break also and how much support your patients need. So if, if most of my patients now are pretty high functioning. And so if I was to leave for a week and they missed one session each, it wouldn't be the end of the world to them. I'll still check in on them, and I still have someone that covers for me. Meaning that, let's say, uh, my colleague Alexa, you know her. Let's say that I told her, I was like, hey, Sean and I are going out of the country. Um, do you mind covering for me for that week? Most of them, I don't have any appointments with my patients, but if they have an emergency, can I give them your number? That's how we coordinate. Also, a lot of my patients have a psychiatrist that they're, you know, managing their medication, so I'll let the psychiatrist know I'm going out of town and ask if they they don't mind taking the emergency calls or any upsets that could happen with, you know, XYZ patient, right? That's how we do it. So that then I can actually take a break and my patients have someone to call knowing I have to communicate, right? I have to communicate with them, letting them know that I'm not available. I won't be checking my voicemail. I won't be available via text or email that if they have any issues or anything they need to communicate, that it needs to go to these people. And yes, it can be hard for some patients. Some patients struggle um, with me not being there and knowing that I'm not easily reachable. But that's some that's like work and therapy, then, right? That's more attachment-based. That's that gives us more information and something we can work on. Um so yeah, it's it's really, I have certain rules and my patients know these rules um and that kind of helps with work life balance so the last thing i'm going to talk about is managing like while i'm still here like not just taking vacation or uh going on a honeymoon or maternity leave maternity leave is a bigger ordeal and you have to get someone not that i've done it myself but i have uh accepted patients from other people who have gone on maternity leave where you agree to cover for them for that, those 12 weeks or whatever they decide to take um knowing there's kind of this agreement that like if the patient doesn't want to go back to them when they're back that you can keep them or or not, you know, that they will go back. It's like you talk about that so that you're in agreement, so you do what's best for the patient. Um, so anyway, there's a lot of logistics with that. But the final thing is work-life balance is important. For instance, at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock, depending on the day, on Fridays, I stop at 5. On other days, I allow it till 6 p.m. But I do not reply to phone calls, text messages, unless it's an emergency any later than that. And my patients know that if it cannot wait 24 hours for my, like... Response, you need to like call 911 or you need to call an emergency services because I'm not an emergency service. Like, I'll do my best to support and to- but I'm an outpatient therapist, right? So, it's communicating that with patients so that I'm not looking at my phone when Sean and I are out to dinner. I mean, if COVID wasn't happening, that'd be amazing. We go out to dinner. Um, but, you know, things like that, right? I, I cannot be reachable. Also, I shouldn't be, let's say I'm out with friends and I've had like two glasses of wine. I shouldn't be talking to a patient. That's not appropriate. And so that, that's why there are limitations. Um, one of the main things that I've did, and one, if you're considering being a therapist, I would encourage you to do is to get two phones. So my personal phone is not my work phone. And that just breaks up how people can have access to me. So then when I do go out to dinner or I do go on vacation or any of those things, I leave my work phone at home because I don't need it because it's not necessary and I can check my voice messages from distance, you know, using like my pin and stuff. I can get in that way. Um yeah. So that's I hope that kind of gives you some insight. If you have more uh, like questions about it, let me know, but a lot of it is just us giving ourselves the permission to take breaks, holding boundaries and communicating clearly with our patients, which is all stuff that we should know, we should be doing. Um but it takes a little practice, you know. And as you get uh kind of more in your career and kind of get settled, you have more and more colleagues that you've connected with at CEU event or continuing education events. Um, we have to gather these hours every year and you go to like different conferences and, um, local events and stuff like that. And so you get to talk to people, you get to know more people, um, and that just allows you to have more people you can reach out to to have them cover for you, and vice versa, right? They do it for you; you do it for them. It kind of um, then your patients can kind of get used to maybe communicating with that one person, knowing, oh, you're out of town. Is Bonnie filling in? And I'm like, yeah, she is. So things like that can be really great too. Um, yeah, so I hope that that helps because we again we can't pour from an empty pitcher, right? We have to take care of ourselves first. That doesn't just go for regular people in everyday life. That especially goes for people who give uh, offer care to others, um, like therapists. Okay. Question number two. Hi, Katie. Is it normal to have episodes of extreme sadness and hopelessness before and during your period? I've considered self-harming during those times. Do you think it's just mood swings or could it be my body's need to let go of all the emotions I've bottled up over the month? Please comment. Oh, and then people left comments. She's asking people to comment if they had similar experiences. And I saw the comments. And I want you all to know that I am, COVID just totally threw a wrench in this but I, I am doing a whole series on hormones because I think it's important. I think it's something that we don't talk about enough. And when it comes to this, I will be sitting down or I might just do a zoom thing. You guys, I'm trying to, Sean and I were just talking about this the other day, trying to find a way to interview my OBGYN so that she can, um, answer some of these questions. And I wanted to do it like a sit down chitty chat. Cause she's lovely. You'll love her. Um, but I don't know if that will be possible because of the coronavirus. So we might have to do it like over the computer and record it that way. Um, so anyways, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but um, PMDD, I do have a video about this. It's uh, how old is it? It's probably like four years old or three years old. It feels very old at this point, but you can look up YouTube, on YouTube, Katie Morton, PMDD. Um, it's not just PMS. People can have, um, have a, a more intensive version of it and it could be that. I'd like you to read a little bit about that because it's not my specialty, it's not something that I do a lot. Um, I'd want you to again like read a variety, get a, get your information from a variety of sources to see if it resonates with you. However, all in all, as a as a therapist, if my patient would be struggling with this, I'd want you to get in to see um, not only your OB. Because there there are a lot of, this is why I wanted to do this whole series on hormones. There's, there are a lot of reasons that we can have extreme hopelessness or uh, some people have uh, psychosis as related to their period and their hormone shifts and, and manic episodes, depressive episodes, all the things. And so it's really important that we talk to our uh, OBGYN to make sure that our birth control isn't causing this. If we're on birth control, um, I had a a friend years ago who felt like her birth control, it really made her very agitated and aggressive. And she was like, it ruined one of her relationships. And she was like, Oh, it it was so distressing. So it's good to talk to your doctors who prescribed you medication to find out if that's causing it. But another thing is like tracking it. Like I did a video, a, a brand deal a long time ago with the clue app and was mainly because I think it's a really great way to track your cycles and your moods. And I would encourage you to do that because I'd like any, any therapist is going to want to know when it's happening. Like you said, it's uh, before and during your period. Well, how many days before? Because all of that information will be helpful when you talk to your OB or whoever, your gynecologist, whoever you see, um, and they can figure out where in your cycle you are. Because we have every month men and women, but now we're just talking about women because we're talking about periods. Um, every month we have these particular hormone cycles. We go through these different phases. I want to say there's four or five phases a month. I think it's four, but maybe it's five. Um, you know, like follicular phase is one of them for an example. Um, and that can, we can need certain nutrients. Like some doctors will tell you like, hey, maybe eat more uh, leafy greens that, you know, f- during this time or have more meat during this time or things like that. Um Yeah. So it is normal. A lot of people have PMS, they have PMDD, um, and they have a lot of symptoms associated with that. And we do have hormonal shifts throughout the month. Um, However, I want you to track them because this is impairing your ability to function, this is something that we need to get you treatment for. Whether that's going on or off changing birth controls, maybe that's an antidepressant, maybe that's like some DBT or certain types of therapy to help you better manage all of your feeling. Because I don't want you feeling hopeless and wanting to self-harm and, you know, attempting to take your own life. I want to make sure that we keep you safe, that you feel heard and understood and valued. Um, So it's it's not just mood swings. Um, and also it's important to know that for those of us who struggled with, uh, depression or anxiety are, we can have a more intensive like PMS or PMDD like response. And if we have a baby, we are more likely to have like, uh, they used to call it the baby blues, but it's really like postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. If we already have struggled with something, it is more likely that we'll uh, experience it then as well. Um, so sorry, I know I'm all over the place with this, but I just wanted to make sure I like as, as intensely as possible cover all the topics. Um, I do not believe it's just your body's need to let go of all the emotions you bottled up over the month, but you shouldn't be bottling up your emotions all over the month. That's the therapist in me. I'm like, Hey, let's print out some of those feelings charts. Let's start tracking how we feel. Let's start journaling. Ooh, the J bomb. You guys knew it was coming. Um, Let's start getting that out so we can kind of make sense of it. Because the one thing that I'm noticing, the more I research like trauma and memories and neuroplasticity and how our brain works, the more I realize that when we don't give ourselves the time and space to put... um to put a scenario into a story or into like, we call it like narrative form. You'll hear a lot of that in therapy speak where they're like, you need to put it in a story or narrative form. It really is the way that our brain puts together memories and logs them away is like by telling them in a story. It's a way for us to make sense of something that's happened. And when we don't give our brain the time and space to do that, to like put it into a story, to make sense of it, to tease it out, put it on a timeline, has a beginning, middle, end, it feels very disorganized right like if i had a pen right now and over the screen i just scribble 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 circle and it's just this chaos like that's how it feels when we keep stuffing the emotions down that's how it feels when we are dealing with trauma memories and we're trying to sort through them that's how it can feel when uh you know we're trying to put a memory together it's like uh trying to untangle 17 necklaces that you Took on a trip and put them in a plastic bag and shook them up. You know what I mean? It's like it's a big fucking mess. So, all that to say that um, we need to be processing our emotions. We need to be thinking about all that we're feeling. We need to give ourselves time to put t- together what happened in the day—beginning, middle, end. Um, talk talk about it with a loved one. Talk about it with a therapist. Write journal about it with ourselves. Um, you know, come to terms with how you're feeling. Maybe identify a few emotions. And then put it, you know, close your journal or or end the conversation. Like, it's it's done. We don't have to keep, like, talking about, like, ruminating or belaboring the conversation. But we need to get used to talking about things and getting out there. It's really where the healing begins. And then when it comes to like the fact that you're feeling extremely sad and hopeless, um, you need to speak to a mental health professional to get help with that because it sounds like, again, it's become, it's affecting your ability to function. And so we need to get this under control so that every month you're not having like suicidal thoughts and self-harming urges. Um, yeah, I mean, I could get into self-injury and all of that stuff as well, but I really, that's really the gist of it. Um, it is, it is very normal. Like if you watch my video about PMDD, Um, I have like women's health videos as well, but PMS, PMDD, I have a video about that. Um, no, it's not just mood swings. And even if it was just mood swings, it doesn't make them any less valid or, you know, important to recognize. And, uh, you do need to find ways to let go of all your emotions that you bottled up over the month, but it's not, that's not the only reason this is happening. There's something bigger at play, especially the self-harming urges. So, um, reach out to someone, speak up, also talk to your OBGYN or your gynecologist to find out, you know, if there, if you are on birth control, if that could be causing this or if there's something you should try, um, all that good stuff. And yeah, I hope that's helpful and and stay tuned for the hormone series because it will be, um, you'll be following along as I learn about hormones and the shifts and the cycles. Um, and hopefully we both come away with some helpful information. Okay. Question number three says, Do I have to believe therapy will work in order to get better? I'm depressed and not super hopeful, but I'm trying. I just can't imagine wanting to live. And just FYI, I started on an antidepressant and I do really like my therapist. This is a great question. I'm not going to lie. My first knee-jerk reaction when I read it was like, well, yeah, of course you have to, to believe in therapy. But the truth, the more I thought about it is, no, you don't. I've had tons of patients over the years who could never imagine things getting better, couldn't believe that therapy would be something that would help them. They had all these like things they didn't believe in, didn't think it was going to work, struggled to believe in themselves and their own effort they're putting in and all that shit. And they still got better. It's really hard work. It is easier if we are super motivated and we believe in therapy. I'll be honest, but that makes sense, right? If you guys think about it, it totally makes sense. If I'm super motivated and I love therapy and I believe in it, and I think it's really helping me, it's going to be easier in general. And if I don't, it's going to be harder, but, um, you can still get better. And it's really, really important. The most important component, I don't know if you guys know this, is that you like your therapist and you feel like they get you. That therapeutic relationship is, is one of the most important and key components in our recovery. and if you're still feeling depressed and super not hopeful, you said you started an antidepressant. If it's been like six weeks or four weeks since you've started it, talk to your psychiatrist, put in a call, say, Hey, I'm still feeling like shit. When is this supposed to kick in? It's okay to ask those questions um, because we want to find you a medication that helps. We want to find a medication that, that you know, at least reduces your symptoms to a point where you don't feel like you're drowning in them, right? That's the whole point of medication is I want to get my head above water so then I can participate in therapy in a more full way. And so, um, so yeah, so the real answer is no, you don't have to believe in therapy uh, or believe that therapy will work in order to get better. You just have to keep trying. And I know it's hard, but we all know therapy is really hard work anyways. It's, it's actually much easier easier to like stuff it down or ignore it. I don't even know if easier is the right word um but it is it takes less uh, mental effort that way versus facing our fears facing our issues talking about it in a real way feeling vulnerable managing the shame and the embarrassment that's a lot more work from my perspective and you can disagree that's fair but I really think it's it, it's really hard therapy's hard work um so yeah and hopefully the antidepressant will help you out and get you get you feeling better okay. Question number four. I wasn't sure where to leave this request for a video on sibling emotional abuse and bullying, especially in adult siblings. This is a is a very real and underlooked issue by society and the mental health community in general. Um, so it's hard to find support, and it's often misunderstood as sibling rivalry. Being subjected to emotional and/or physical abuse and bullying by a sibling into adulthood has devastating effects. A sibling is expected to be someone who's there for you, at least loves you at the end of the day, and doesn't want to see bad things happen to you. I know I'm not alone in this, but the lack of acknowledgement and support for this issue leaves its victims feeling isolated, alone, and discouraged, which leads to worsened depression, anxiety, and self-worth. Katie, please help. It can be lifelong, and the emotional abuse is more damaging than the physical. Um... This wasn't necessarily a question. It's kind of more of a discussion. And so I would like to open up the discussion about sibling emotional abuse and bullying. Um, when we're younger, it's something that I believe should be brought to the attention of our parents. Hopefully we don't have, you know, parents that are totally shitty at their job. Hopefully we have parents who are like tuned in, listening, and will make changes and either punish the the sibling who's doing the bullying, uh, help you to talk it out, uh, to get you into family therapy um, try to find some solutions. Hopefully that, cause that would be the goal for me. If you are a, a younger child and one of your siblings is a total piece of garbage, um, kids go through their own shit and they lash out at each other. I've also, I've talked, um, I have a video about like child on child sexual abuse. I've talked about that a little bit too, because when we hurt as children, we often lash out at other children in our lives and who's closest to us, our siblings. Um, and so I think when it comes to an adult siblings, if you don't live with them, get the fuck away from them. And I know that's easier said than done. A lot of people struggle to cut people out of their lives, especially family. There's a lot of guilt associated with it. There's a lot of, um, it's mainly the guilt, but it's also the like, but their family as if that gives them like, Oh, I saw this. Okay. I saw this quote as a meme or quote or something on Instagram. And it was like, Oh, so good. And I'm not going to say it exactly as they said it, but I'm going to do- try to do it justice. The quote was, "Why would you be giving someone in your family all these passes on stuff that you wouldn't give to someone else in the world? Them being family didn't stop them from doing it to you." Do you guys get that? I'm fucking it up because it was a much like more succinct and just an amazing quote. But that's really that's the truth. Them being your mother or your father, or your sister, or your brother didn't stop them from being a dickwad to you. So why should the fact that their family stop you from putting in healthy boundaries, distancing yourself, having a talk with them where you talk about how inappropriate it is that they talk to you that way and how it's not okay and you can't yell at me this way and that's not something that I'm going to tolerate. Um, you know, if you want to be in my life, here's what you have to do. Um, so I just want to put that out there because I think too often we get stuck in relationships with our families and we shouldn't. It's not healthy. It's like we don't have to continue a relationship with someone just because they're family. Like the fact that their family does not make it okay for them to treat us however they want. Okay. I just want you to know that blood relative or family, whatever you want to call family, it doesn't give you carte blanche to do whatever. And I know I've talked about that a little bit in past, uh, you know, podcasts and live streams and stuff like that. But I really want to talk about it here because sibling rivalry is one thing. Sibling rivalry is when you want to be better than your other sibling and that could be in sports or school and you could sabotage them in some ways. But what sibling rivalry is not is emotional abuse. This doesn't mean you should bully them, put them down, shit talk them, uh, traumatize them in any way, do things that are terrifying or scary. No. That's not what it is. Sibling rivalry is like, oh, you got a 91 on your test. I got a 92. Suck it. That's sibling rivalry. Abuse is abuse. Okay. Um, and so I just want to draw that distinction because I, I do not just shrug things off as sibling, sibling rivalry. Um, yeah. So best way to manage this is Distance yourself from them. Leave as soon as you can. Do not engage with them. Uh, create scenarios where you feel a little bit safer. Maybe that means that you get locks on your doors that you put in yourself if you live with them, or maybe that means that you don't see them. You you refuse and you express that to your family. The one number one thing that I would say when it comes to this that's important is seeing a therapist asap because the abuse that you've sustained is important for you to to start. Making sense of it like I was talking about before, it's like the scribble that's all swirly twirling and combined and it's all a mess and we need to have someone that's there with us talking it through, helping us put that beginning middle end, processing through the trauma, maybe doing some like schema work or movement in our body, you know that somatic experiencing getting out that all the energy that's caught inside um putting language and words and emotion words to how we you know, the abuse that we sustained and what we're going through, all that stuff. We need someone to help guide us. And so, um, yeah, that's really that's really where it's at is just getting actual trauma support and therapy um, and putting up boundaries where you can. And I've talked about boundaries a lot. If you want, you can watch videos on my channel, just put it in Katie Morton boundaries or even Katie Morton, emotional abuse or toxic relationships. there's tips and tricks in there as well. Um, but yes, you're not alone. I know that, um, you know, being bullied by a sibling isn't anything that anyone wants to deal with. And I want you to know that you don't have to put up with it and you don't have to see them anymore. And again, just remind, just remind yourself just because their family doesn't mean that I get to give them passes to treat me. However, cause it doesn't stop them from being a, a fucking piece of garbage. Um, so right. Just remember that. Okay. Question number five. What do you recommend for someone without much of a support system aside from their therapist? This is very common. For example, having no friends or anyone who really understands. I've talked about this, um, maybe just on live streams. I'm trying to think if there's a video and I really don't know if there is, but this is really, really common. I deal with this. Uh, actually you guys, the most common way that I deal with this is in my private practice. Um, cause I have a lot of patients who either, uh, don't have like any support at all, or have like one friend that lives like you know not close by. Like it's not easy to see them. Maybe they're like in San Diego or in another state in Texas. Nobody knows. Um, And so even though we can reach out to them and, and have phone calls and facetimes and all that stuff, it's not the same as having a friend. You can like go to their house and like meet up with them and get some support and cry when you need to, and you know have them like rub your back, tell you it's gonna be okay. Um, and so what I recommend is is a couple of things. First of all, online support, more and more research. I was just talking about this today. Um, I was on uh, Dr. Uh, Caroline Leaf. She has a podcast. I'll, be, I'll let you guys know when it goes live because um, I don't think it'll go live before our podcast because this will go out in two days. Um, but she was telling me that there's more. She's a neuroscientist and she does research. And she was telling me there's more and more research. And I've, I've expressed this to you guys in the past that online support actually, we know, gives us the same release and the same good feeling that in person connection does it blows my mind but the way that it works is that if we have a certain person let's say let's say it's me every time you see my little avatar come up and you see Katie you know you know it's the same person the same avatar and we talk day after day week after week we support each other you know i'm available to you you're available to me we chat all day long off and on as we have free time that connection feels just the same as if we were hanging out all day and that they can tell through research and neuroscience. You guys, I'm not, a, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I really, I'm not sure, but it releases the same like feel good things that connections give us. It calms our system down. Like polyvagal theory, if you guys don't know is like our vagus nerve, it helps calm us down. Um, and that social interaction is really a key part of that. So get online, find some groups, Find some places that are supportive. I know a lot of you have told me over the years that like Facebook groups or other support groups online can feel very like people just complaining or triggering, right? Like some trauma groups on Facebook, some people told me it's just like, just walking right into it like a trigger. It's like people are just sharing way too much stuff. So finding up space that feels good for you. I have a group on Facebook. It might not be the best fit for you, but it's worth the try. You can check that out. I also think, especially because of the coronavirus, something cool that has happened is a lot of therapists are offering groups and they're opening them up to people outside of just their patients because people are looking for support. And so I really think that that's a great place to start. Um you know, ask your therapist for some of their referrals. You can call treatment centers, clinics, hospitals in your area. You can ask, um, you could even just lie and be like, Hey, I'm calling for a friend. I was looking for some groups about trauma or some support groups for people with depression. Do you know of any of those? I'd love to give her some referrals. Um, not only are group, uh, group therapy is much cheaper than individual uh, so it's often more affordable a lot of people are doing it for free right now so let's take advantage let's get some help um even if a gr- uh, you call and a group is already going right i've had people uh, back in the day i used to run this like uh, anxiety group for teens and uh, anyway we were full at the time and I did not continue on to do it because I was doing YouTube more full time at the time. I was switching over. But the girl that I um the woman, I don't know why I say girl, she's like my age, but the woman that uh, co-ran it with me was continuing on. We'd found another colleague of ours to take over my spot and they were doing it again. So when people called and we were like, hey, we're already six weeks into our 10 week course, the next one will start in, you know, a month or two or whatever. So you can call and still see like, oh, when will this happen again and get that stuff set up? So that's great. Um, online support is great. Um, I also am a huge advocate of like emotional support animals. These are not, you know, like I know not everybody can get a dog or a cat, but there's something about having some, something that counts on you that can help us feel a little bit better and help us feel more connected. That's another great thing. Um, and then our community in the comments, most like our community online is wonderful, supportive, loving, everybody's super nice. Like even on my TikTok, I released a TikTok the other day and somebody said, um, thank you so much for making me smile. This was great. And then somebody commented and was like, yeah, me too. It's nice to know more nice people are here. Like they were chatting with one another. And I was like, I love you guys so much. It's just wonderful. So know that you do have support. Um, and then after COVID is tricky because we have COVID right now. Um, but there are like, I used to have my patients do go to their local community center and find out what's happening. Or even in like, if you're part of the AAA, uh, if you guys don't know, it's like AAA is just like a an automobile group, which sounds really weird, but they give you these magazines every month. It's like Westways. And in the back, it tells you of like different events that are going on in your area. I used to tell my patients to look into those and to go to different events just to meet people, be friendly. Have a couple of things that you're, you practice and you're prepared to say so we can meet new people. I know that's a little tricky right now. It's like meetup.com. A lot of my patients had success there as well, um, but I know that things are not the same. So get online, reach out, speak up. Um, yeah, hopefully that gave you some tips, but I would love to hear from you guys as well. Can you let me know in those comments down below if there are other things that have been helpful for you in finding your support system, um, certain groups or things online that you find to be really, really helpful? let me know. Cause that would be super helpful for, um, for the person who asked this question, anybody else who was wondering, right? Cause it got a lot of thumbs ups. Um, okay. Question number six. Hi, Katie. When do you know it's time to switch therapists or if the kind of help you're getting is not enough? This is a great question. And as for like, I'm sure you guys know a lot of these questions, it's going to be different person to person, right? Everyone's experience is going to be different. But the way to know if, uh, I can tell you right away, if the kind of help you're, you're getting is not enough, if you are putting in effort in therapy, and that's a big if, I want you to, to be honest with yourself. Are you doing the homework? Are you showing up trying to talk through certain things that might be difficult? Are we putting in that, that effort? Okay. If the answer is yes, we're putting in the effort, we're showing up, we're we're being vulnerable, we're sharing what we can, um, and we just don't feel so. Then okay, so if we're putting on the effort, if we don't feel like the therapist is asking questions to get us anywhere, if we're not working towards any goals, we feel like we're just stuck. Like we're we're oh, we got into therapy, we're feeling good. Oh, and then we plateau and we're just not getting any better, no matter how much work we do, because again, our therapist has to work as hard as we do. I know I've talked about this in the past and I'll have a video that comes out on my main channel about this, but like therapists cannot work harder than their patients. We can't make you get better, but we do need to work as hard as you. And so if you're putting in the effort and you're still not getting better, um, then you might need a different type of help, or you might need to switch therapists. The way to know if you need to switch a therapist is if you don't feel connected to them, you don't feel like they listen to you, You've tried to communicate about your issues and this is a big important one. We need to communicate with our therapists and tell them things like, "Hey, I'd really need you to challenge me more or I um, you keep forgetting you know my safe space and that's, that's triggering for me And could you, could you please write that down? We need to start doing our best to communicate to express what we need and what we're not getting and why that's important. And I know that's really hard. I know a lot of you just like stop listening because you're like, "Fuck that Katie, but it's really, really important. And so um, if they're not doing those things and we've tried to communicate it and no change has been made, so we have to give them a chance to make a change. Like, let's say I accidentally uh, keep mixing up one of my patients' uh, parents' names with their dog's name. I don't know. Let's say I keep fucking that up and it hurts their feelings. And they tell me, hey, Katie, it's really important that you don't you know, mix those names up. It it hurts my feelings. It makes me feel like you're not listening. And I would apologize. I would say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'd apologize directly. Also, I think it's important that, and that's a whole nother topic, but apologizing directly for the thing, not just being like, oh, if that was offensive, I apologize. That's not an apology. If you just told me it was, it's a very, I was just talking to someone about this the other day. If is a, it makes it a non-apology. If you're offended, I'm sorry. I'm telling you, I am. So, your therapist should apologize directly for it. Say, I am so sorry that I keep messing up that name. I will do better next time. And then they should. And so you have to give them a chance to come back and try it again. And if, if they don't, if it doesn't get better, then we can switch therapists. There's also the reason you could want to switch therapists because you think you need like a different kind of help or like, you know, uh, for instance, like I don't do EMDR. Somebody needs EMDR. I don't do schema therapy, although I'm reading about it find it very interesting, but I don't do those types of things. And so if someone I think could benefit from that because things aren't getting better with us and I'm working hard and they're working hard, they might need more help or just different help. Um, and so that's really it is just tracking your progress. Do you feel like you're making some progress and you feel like you're working hard and therapy's hard work. So don't pretend that, you know, just showing up and doing the thing and trying the homework isn't enough work. That's enough. But some people, like, for instance, I have many patients over the years who I've said, like, call me when you feel more motivated. You know, we're just not getting anywhere because you're lying to me. You're not showing up for appointments. This was before COVID. Not showing up for appointments or canceling late um, or showing up really late. Like, I used to have this patient that would show up like 20, 30 minutes late and then want to leave early. And I'd be like, you don't need to come anymore (laughs) because you don't want to be here. Um, So, yeah. So, as long as you're putting in the effort, you should feel like you're getting better. And if you're not, you might need... Different help, or you might need switch therapists, or a different style of therapy, or you might need a more intensive type of therapy. Um, That all depends on your particular situation. Cool, cool. Okay, let's move on to question number seven. I love this next. You guys have such good questions. It's like courtesy to the chef. So good. Okay, question number seven. Katie, or hi, Katie. How do you make sure what you're saying in therapy is clear? Sometimes I don't think that I'm doing a good job at explaining what's really going on. Sometimes I don't even know how to explain something that's going on. Thanks so much. <sighs> In the comments of this, like so many people agreed with this. So many people struggle with this too. And I really think that we do the best we can. There's a part, there's a reason why I'm always encouraging my patients and my viewers to journal is because journaling. Is a, is like a, a godsend. It's a fucking life changer. Not only can we see and more uh, more quickly process what we're feeling, what we're going through, but we can also get out what's in our head and then we can look at it later, right? Like I've journaled all this stuff and then I read it and I can say to myself, does that make sense? And then if I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Okay. Then I can take that into therapy and I can read directly from my journal, or I can just share, hey, I journaled the other day about this thing that happened. And you just tell them, um, you don't have to worry if what you're saying always makes 100% sense and is super clear and articulate. Trust me, I know how hard it is to put words to things that have happened to us, not especially like traumas and things like that. I mean, Jesus, it's so difficult. So to ask someone to recall something or to expect them to be able to just clearly talk about it easily, I don't do that. And no therapist should do that. We know how hard it is, it's not our first rodeo. It's not the first person we've seen. Most of us should have been in our own therapy. We should know how hard this is. So you don't have to worry. We as therapists have to worry about asking clarifying questions where we don't understand something. That's just, that's just par for the course. I'm sure many of you have heard your therapist ask things such as, um, okay. So you, you'd said that something had happened with your father or do you, I'm not quite sure what that is you you haven't let me know. Are you okay talking about that now? Something like that? Or um I'm not sure what you meant when you said that you felt overwhelmed. Was that with uh anxiety or was that with just excitement energy, right? We ask clarifying questions because we don't understand because it wasn't clear for us. That's on us. We have to like make sure that we're understanding. We have to listen as you teach us about your experience and that's like I feel like most of what being a therapist is, is just asking other questions, follow-up questions um, and make, you know, remembering some basic shit and asking follow-up questions and moving towards people's goals. Right? Like, so don't worry too much about it. If you really are struggling to express something, um, write it out first or talk it out with someone else first, ask them if it makes any sense. Um, And that's really it. And then you can always ask your therapist after you've said something like, does that make sense? Do you get that? Am I being clear? Um, because it can be really hard to know how to explain something, especially when it can be so emotionally overwhelming. So it's, it's okay to ask, you know? Um, yeah. I hope that helps, but that's a great question. Um, and something that I haven't discussed before. So you guys always have such great questions. Okay. Question number eight. Hi, Katie how bad do body image issues have to be to be considered body dysmorphia? I struggle with body image issues and can't even look at myself in the mirror or in a photo without heavily criticizing myself. Sometimes I feel so bad about myself that I don't even want to go out. Hope you're okay. Thanks. Yes, I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. Um, so, Body image issues again. I really. I was just talking to um, to Dr. Leaf that I was talking about earlier about how much we hate the DSM, but it's like the place. It's a place to start, and I've talked about that over the years in one way or another. But I do believe, and I want to apologize to all of you. I feel like I've definitely relied on it more than I should have over the years, and I think that was just because. You know I was learning along, and the more i the more patients I've seen and the more I've talked with each and every one of you, the more I realized how limiting the dsm is and that's why I've always said like it's not the end all be all but it gives us like some structure and so I don't want to dig into the diagnostic criteria because I think it's hogwash frankly and the truth about body uh body dysmorphia or really any mental illness is when you want to know how bad something has to be for it to be considered a, a Mental disorder, right? The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. If we want to know if something fits that criteria, because I think some of the criteria are kind of shit, the real thing that I always ask my patients and the thing I consider with my patients is, does it impair your ability to function? Meaning, does it make it hard for you to get to work and school on time or focus in work or school or do the things you need to do when you're at work or school? Does it impair your relationships? Social? Romantic? Are you not able to stay focused, communicate about your wants and needs? Um, do you find yourself flying off the handle, ruining that relationship? Is it hard for you to, it's because it's body dysmorphia, so it's hard for you to get physical with them at all? Even though you want it, then you're uncomfortable. Do you make them turn out all the lights and close their eyes? Like, how impairing is that, right? And so we just need to consider how our life is affected By this issue. And if it's impairing that in any way, it's bad enough. And I also don't like when people are like, oh, am I sick enough? Is this bad enough? We all deserve help. I want you to hear that. We all deserve help. It's important that we understand that the sooner we reach out and the sooner we speak up, the easier it's going to be for us to work on it. I know it's uncomfortable. I know talking about uh, tough things is tough. However, you don't have to feel completely terrible at the bottom of the barrel before you reach out. We don't have to be quote unquote bad enough. Okay. I want you to all know you deserve help now, no matter what we can all benefit from therapy. Okay. So I, um, I want to get into the last part of her question. Struggle with body image issues. Yeah. Can't even look myself in the mirror or in a photo without heavily criticizing myself. And sometimes I feel so bad about myself that I don't even want to go out. I just from reading this would say, yes, that's body dysmorphia. 100%. Okay. So just know very valid and reach out, talk to someone, get some support. There are a lot of therapists that can help you better understand body dysmorphia. Um, I find that a lot of it, like you said, it's like um, feeling bad about yourself. A lot of it comes out of like lack of self-confidence and some shame. It could have a trauma basis or eating disorder basis. Um, but yes, reach out, speak up, and get some support because it does get better. Okay. Question number nine. Katie, I would like to ask you about trauma memories. Ooh, right up my alley. Just wrote a whole chapter about them. Let's get ready. It says, I was sexually abused in my early teens. I'm so sorry that happened to you. I understand now that I was traumatized by it, of course. And I am diagnosed with CPTSD. If you guys don't know, complex PTSD is when we have repeated traumas. Um, it's almost like when waves hit us on the shore, uh, one big trauma would be like one big wave sweeping us out and we're like, "Oh!" and we get our head above water, we can catch our breath. But CPTSD is when the waves just keep coming and we just can't like get our footing. Um, so, But I still have difficulties um, understanding that it was really that traumatic. And my therapist thinks I'm still minimizing what happened. Very common. I think part of the reason for that is the fact that it took so long to realize what actually happened. About 17 years. Yes. Because that makes me, um, and that makes me feel so stupid. Another is that it's hard for me to remember how I felt at the time. That's totally normal. Can I have repressed how I felt at the time, but not what happened? 100%. How can I recognize that my memories are shattered? Like the marbles you refer to? Are trauma memories always shattered? We'll get into that a little bit. It's so difficult to find helpful information because I feel like the info about sexual abuse is either, um, about younger children or older teenagers, or adult, adults. So none of that quite captures what it was like as a 14 year old who thought I knew what sex was, but really didn't. And who was interested in kissing, but not ready for sex. Sorry, this is so long. That's okay. It was great. It's, it's important for us to, to understand where you're at and to, to hear it from you. So, Okay. I have so much I could talk about. And when my book comes out, order my book. I hope it's helpful. Um, Trauma memory. So I talked about trauma memories a lot, like these shattered marbles. And someone left a comment on this. And this is, I really want to dig into this. And I'm so glad someone left a comment. They were saying that it's not always like a shattered marble when it's complex PTSD. Because you have to consider a shattered marble is like one trauma memory. Boom. It's that one wave. Boom. It happens, right? We manage the symptoms. We kind of try to deal with it or whatever. Once we feel safe, we we put it in a, a narrative form: beginning, middle, end. We we work out the. We move through it, maybe, or we do what we need to do. We get on medication, something like that, and we start to feel better. When something repeatedly happens, when we're traumatized over and over, and it feels like we can't even get our head above water, it it becomes what happens. And the way I I try to describe it in my book is like our brain attaches trauma to almost everything in our environment. And we know that happens because um, our memories are formed in our hippocampus. Okay. And the hippocampus is attached to our amygdala, ooh, which I ran into the microphone. I'm so sorry. So it's attached to our amygdala, which I know I talk about our amygdala a lot, how it's our fight, flight, freeze. It's our fear response. Um, it's the fire alarm in our brain. And yes, it is all, all of those things. But one important thing that we need to remember about the amygdala is it's like our emotion section where it's like, it not only is the fear response, but it's the joy response. It's the excited response. Um, It's all of those things. It's the soothed response. It gives us that emotional response that we need. And so I believe because those things are, are like the hippocampus is attached to the amygdala. I think sometimes depending on where a memory is stored, because Uh, of all the research I read, what I really believe is true is they're stored in different parts, depending on what they are and what's happened. I'm no neuroscientist, you guys, but I'm just saying after reading, I'm like, I think that makes sense. Um, That's why I believe sometimes we remember what happened, but we don't remember how we felt or vice versa. Um, And it just depends on us. It depends on the scenario. um, And it depends on how we've retrieved the memory as well. So then going back to like you, you, Uh, it took you so long to realize what actually happened, about 17 years, that is very normal. I want you to know that, yes, we can trust our trauma memories. Yes, they are true. We know through research, neuroscience, that memories cannot be created or changed and amended in any way until they're retrieved, until we try to pull them back, right? Maybe that's because we hit as a triggering event. Maybe um, I smelled something that brought that trauma back. Maybe um, I had to, you know, Talk to the person who did something to me and it was super triggering. Whatever it is, it can bring things back. But until that thing is retrieved, we cannot alter it. So don't think that you can just like make something up. I know a lot of people are like, what if I'm just making it up? Don't worry, you're not. Um, and the repression is something that we consciously choose to do, but we all know why that happens. It's because our brain's like, oh, I can't deal with this. Oh my God. And we're like, I'm still in this dangerous situation. I can't even process this. Or I've had lots of patients who are like, I just knew I need to get through nursing school or I need to finish that course. I just had to get pushed through. I didn't have time right then. I can't deal with this right now. And we do that to ourselves all the time. And so when we just like, Oh, I don't have time to deal with this. We back burner it, but we really repress it. And then we can forget about it for 17 years until it pops back up. um, so yeah, all this is very 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 common, very normal. Um you can still trust your memories. Oh, and I wanted to say um that uh the trauma memories aren't always shattered, but they can feel very tangled. Kind of like I was talking about before. Like it can feel um it can feel like that knot. Like like earlier I was talking about how if you packed like 10 necklaces together and you shook them up in a bag, uh, all those knots in that, that chaos, it's very disorganized. And so they're not always shattered. Um, it dep- Everyone's experience is going to be different. But for a lot of people, the more I read about trauma and the more I understand it, it, it feels very uh, tangled up and it's confusing. And the, another reason why I mentioned the amygdala and the hippocampus is the amygdala's job is to uh, seek out threat, right? It looks for reasons for us to be scared to make sure that if it needs to, it triggers our stress response and we go into fight flight, right? That's its job. And we're always looking for threat. So if we can consistently, if we were like complex PTSD, if we we're chronically traumatized in our life over and over and over. The amygdala is associating everything we've come in contact with during any of those experiences, not even to mention, like let's not leave out the fact that we can be re-traumatized in therapy. We can be re-traumatized when we just try to recall the trauma for someone. We can be re-traumatized because... Um, we were outside and we were triggered by something from the trauma and we go into freeze again, right? It can happen for a lot of reasons. Our amygdala keeps associating more and more and more and more and more and more more with this trauma. And so it gets all confusing because we're like, but wait, is that part of the trauma? Is this part of the trauma? What about this? And so I think instead of considering these, I'd almost amend my, uh, my belief that they're like shattered marbles. I just really love Inside Out and they do a great job explaining memories. But it wouldn't just be shattered. It'd be like a bird's nest of twine and uh, yarn, and it's all twisted in the necklaces or something, right? It's just a mess of things, and we don't know what timeline they came from. We don't know why they're there. We have all sorts of issues with it, and it's hard to tease it out. And so, yeah, I hope that that's helpful. I hope that answers your question. Um, Let me make sure I answered them because I want to make sure I didn't forget anything. So can I have repressed how I felt at the time, but not what happened? 100%. Often the feelings are what prevents us from actually going back to that thing because we're not able to always separate. But again, I think maybe memories are stored in different parts. I don't know. Um, How can I recognize if my memories are shattered like the marbles you refer to? Um, If it just feels disorganized, that's really what I mean. If we're not able to put the memories into like beginning, middle, end, and we know which timelines, like doing a trauma timeline is really helpful, um, for this. But if we're not able to do that, th- that's shattered. We don't, we are confused about what happened. We're not able to process it to the beginning, middle, end it, It's, it's too messy. It's too tangled. Um, yeah. So I hope that that's, uh, that that's helpful. You let me know if you have any follow-ups and I hope that my book is helpful. I hope it makes sense because it's, it's been, um, it's a labor of love, you guys. I I hope that it's it's helpful for those out, uh, those of you out there who are struggling with trauma, because it's it's very. Sometimes it can feel like the cards are stacked against us when we're traumatized because of that. Like it's like so we have these memories we can't process them, and then often we don't sleep well, which we know is key for processing memories. So then we have that, and then we're re, we traumatized because of the triggers, because trying to keep us safe, but that makes it harder. And then we might not want to leave our house, and we can be hyper vigilant in public. It's like all these things. But it does get better Um, reaching out, speaking to a therapist. Like I said, even just moving, movement, I think, is really, really healing for a lot of trauma feelings and a lot of um, trauma, like that freeze. We have to unfreeze. But yeah, anyways, getting support, getting help, uh, getting into therapy will make you feel better. Okay, question number 10. Hi, Katie. I was wondering when therapists actually give a diagnosis. I've talked about this a little bit. I realize it will probably be different for everyone, but is there an estimate? I've been seeing my therapist for almost three months, and we've talked about my background and my day-to-day life, and she uses phrases such as depressed or more anxious people like you, but has never given me a a diagnosis. I'm wondering when would be a good time to ask for a diagnosis. Now, if you're wondering about it, it's okay to ask. Not all therapists will tell their patients um, that they've given them a diagnosis. I've learned this because of you guys, because of all of you wonderful people telling me uh, you know, day after day, year after year, that your therapists just don't tell you. I know that I'm kind of strange when I talk about diagnoses with my patients. Like, I will mention, hey, um, you know, this sounds like anxiety. And I want to read you some of the symptoms I'm seeing. And I want you to tell me if if, if that is how you're really feeling. You know, I want to make sure this lines up with how you're doing um, and all of that stuff. And so, I mean, three months, they most likely have a diagnosis for you, but I would just ask, I would just, I would, what I would say to them is, and depends on if this is true for you, but this is just an example of a conversation you could have with your therapist. You could say something to the effect of, you know, um, do you know what I, what my issue is? Do you have a diagnosis that you're considering? Because I really just, I would like to have a word to put to it, to know that I'm not making it up. It'd be really validating for me. And then they would tell you if they do or don't yet. Um, you could ask if they say no, you could say, "Is are are there some assessments I could take to get a better idea? Would that be helpful? Um, anything. And then hopefully they'll work with you. And then once they come to, you know, you come to an understanding, you talk about it and then you receive a diagnosis. I like to think of a di- like giving of a diagnosis to be more of a, a group project. Like you work on it with your patient because it's not just me, like who knows you better than you? Nobody. Um, so I don't want to pretend that I know your experience better than you. Um, Anyway, so yeah, so I try to work with my patients, make sure they feel like it aligns with what they're struggling with. Um, or if they have been given a diagnosis and they come in with one, I usually talk that out with them. Do you agree with this? Do you believe that it's the right fit for you? These are the symptoms, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it's always up for discussion. I check in with patients every maybe year, eight months, and just make sure that they still feel like it fits. There's nothing new to report, you know, just checking in on our symptomology. Um, again, it's, it's not all, doesn't always mean I don't love the DSM or the ICD-10. I don't believe it incorporates everything, but it's a place to start. Um, so yeah, feel free to bring it up. And I would assume that they, your therapist has an idea already, but, um, I hope that's helpful. Okay. Question number 11, final question says, hi, Katie. I was wondering how emotional numbness and romantic relationships interact. I numb out almost all of my emotions and was wondering if that could cause me to not be interested in dating. 100%. 100%. I think I'm afraid of dating because I feel those emotions will force me to have to deal with more negative emotions and I don't know how to process that. Where to go from here? So being emotionally numb can make it hard for us to connect in relationships, period. Not just romantic relationships. R- relationships require us to to know how we're feeling, how we're doing, to check in on other people, to read their how they are, their body language and and how they're experiencing things. It will that forces us to engage with people, which is wonderful. That's what makes relationships amazing is the connection, right? The connectivity, feeling like someone gets us and we can talk about how we're feeling. We have that support. So if we're feeling really emotionally numb, it's going to be really difficult for us to connect to someone else. Someone else may have this like feeling that we're super connected and our relationship is great, but we might not agree because they don't know us. Um, And that can be protective. That's why I always talk about puffer fishing relationships. I talked about that in my first book, how um, you know, if you don't want someone to get close because it'd make you too vulnerable, you stick your spines out. Yeah. And you're like, I'm puffer fishing and protecting myself, you know? But in, es- in essence, by puffer fishing, you're not allowing anyone to get close to get to know you. So by uh, continuing to allow yourself to be emotionally numb to cut that stuff out, you're not giving anyone the chance to truly get to know you because you might not even know yourself, right? And I don't mean that as any, I let's not. it's not negative. This is just like, understanding where we're at and then knowing that things can get better. And so when you said where to go from here, therapy would be a great place to start. Um eh. It's hard. Acknowledging our emotions is really, really hard. And I don't want you to go in thinking, oh, I'm just going to do these feelings charts and start journaling and it will be easy. It might be, you might be like me where you like kind of keep things held up for a while and then you go into therapy and you're like, like you verbally vomit all of the stuff that you've been holding onto. However, if we've been emotionally numb for a long time, it's usually really tricky. It's like a funny dance that we have to do. And we have to kind of do a little exposure therapy to get us to recognize that by engaging with our emotions, we're not going to be overrun by them. Um, something that I do, and I'll just offer a few tips and tricks, and hopefully this will help get you started, is I always start off with my patients who have been emotionally numb or checked out for a long time. We start off with some uh, emotion regulation skills. And the reason that I do that isn't because opening up to our emotions, again, is going to make us be flooded by them. But I want I want my patients to feel like they're in control and they have some tools they can use. If that happens, it's a way for us to feel a little bit more secure doing this difficult work. And so you can learn some emotion regulation skills. You can honestly just Google emotion regulation skills. Actually, let me see what comes up when I type that in. So I make sure that you um, regulation skills, boom, I'm sending you down the right rabbit hole. Oh yes, so there's six skills right at the very top and there's tons of worksheets. Okay, this is awesome. So yes, just google this because I really think that it can um that, that can give you some some techniques and some tools and ways that you can better manage your emotions so that you feel better prepared for what could happen, which in my experience, it doesn't happen like that. We often worry about that, and it's that's not the reality. Um, but some of it'll be, you know, like some of the emotion regulation skills will, will be like mindfulness and recognizing how we're feeling and all that. But, anyways, you can Google that and find that. And I, um, I even have some videos about DBT, but I don't know if I have ones particularly on just emotion regulation. Um, but yeah, and even part of that I've talked about over the years is just taking care of ourselves better so that we are better able to manage any upsets that come along. That could be everything from, um, using the halt like hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Um, the was ABCs please is another one. Um, you can Google all of these and I want you to pull up the acronyms and everything. Cause hopefully that will kind of help you. Um, yeah, just better be able to calm your system down and regulate it. And connectivity really helps with that too. But okay. So motion regulation skills is first, then Uh, Print out some of those feelings charts and start trying to come up with one a day, just one. And reading through them, the feelings charts help because we might not even know where to start. And just reading through them can help like, ah, spark something. We're like, yeah, I felt that way. And I don't want you to pick the same one every day. It has to be a different one every day. Okay. Um, and then put those words, those feeling words into sentences. Um, and then, like I said, going to see a therapist will really, really help, so that you can get to know yourself better, so that then, if we want to engage in dating or romantic relationships, because it sounds like you you are interested. Um, well, actually, you say you that you cause you to not be interested. You think you're afraid of dating, but afraid is not not interested. So. Um, But it could get you in a better position to understand whether or not you want to date or not, whether or not you feel comfortable, you know, engaging in dating and romantic relationships. We just want you to get to know yourself better. And emotional intelligence is really important, and we'll start with those things. That's that's plenty of work. It's a lot of stuff, but seeing a therapist will really help. Um, And if you're nervous, there's online resources like Talkspace, BetterHelp. they can, you know, offer lower cost therapy and they can offer it to us now when we're at home, if it's not safe to get out or if we're in a small community that doesn't have a lot of resources, all that good stuff. Um, yeah, I hope that was helpful. It was interesting. This, this week, like I said, we always have trends. And this week was a lot about like therapy and the process itself and like therapists and what we do. Um, it's always funny that there's always these like themes along the way. Um, I hope you have a wonderful week. Like I said at the beginning, I know that things can be kind of negative and there's been like some tricky stuff happening online and people are just angry because our world is, we're going through a lot right now. There's there's a big confluence of issues. I think that's the right word. Um, just feeling like I feel overwhelmed. So I'm sure you feel overwhelmed and know that it's okay to take breaks. It's okay to put yourself first. Um, and don't, something I don't do anymore is I don't engage on social media right before bed or when I first wake up because I don't want to like mess with myself then. So maybe consider that for yourself. Do we put the phone down when we lay down for bed? We're not on social media anymore. Um, that's something I've been doing and it's been really helpful uh, preventing me from spiraling out into like, oh my God, everything's terrible. People are so angry at everybody. Whoa. Um, take care of yourself. You're important. And I hope these answers were helpful. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I will see you next week. You can Bye. ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all the questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Kate.